as you know. And um, all through Lent, we've talked about the covenants. Today's the last day we're going to talk about the covenants of the Bible. Okay, we haven't talked about them all. We're not going to. We're not going to talk about, for instance, the covenant with David. I'll mention it briefly. But we've been, you remember I argued that the covenants layer on top of one another and they reveal God's plan as you go through the scriptures of where he's taking his people. And so tonight, today is the new covenant, the triumphal entry. That's why Jesus came. Um, but all the way through late, we've talked about service. That's John 13, uh, last night. He said, talked about service. He washed the disciples' feet as an example. He said, you don't know what I'm doing right now, but you will one day. And, um, and service and sacrifice are part of Lent. Those of you that come from high church environments, you give up something. You sacrifice by giving up something. And I've been encouraging you. Nothing wrong with that. That's actually really good. But uh, I've been encouraging you as you go through Lent to find a way to sacrifice the way Jesus did. Jesus didn't sacrifice something for himself. He sacrificed himself for somebody else. And uh, that's actually the biblical definition of sacrifice. So I've encouraged you to find a friend, a neighbor, um, somebody you don't know maybe that needs encouragement, um, and find a way to sacrifice for them, maybe financially, maybe through your time you can bless them, whatever they need. You know your friends and, uh, more than I do. So find a way to sacrifice during this time. Okay, so we've been talking about the covenants, and today we're talking about the new covenant. Most of you know the biblical story. Last week, we talked about the covenant with Israel at the base of Mount Sinai, which produced the Mosaic law, okay? And basically, the covenant was very simple. If you obey my commands, I will make you a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, and out of all the world, you'll become my prized possession, and I will be your God. It's very simple. At the end of that covenant, uh, it's basically Exodus 19 through 24, they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do. I love that. They said it numerous times, and then they went and didn't do it. And the rest of the story of the Bible, the Old Testament, is them not doing it. So last year, we talked about Leviticus being the blueprint for this house. And today is the final chapter on uh, the final time we're going to talk about covenants and show what all the covenants have done to this house that God is building. And then we're going to get back to Ephesians after Easter. So the people, they just went on their way, and they just kept, you know, um, doing everything they weren't supposed to do. And so God started sending the prophets after them. People started writing like David, wisdom literature, poetry, psalms to help them understand to come back. And they didn't do that. And um, so Moses knew that. The end of Deuteronomy says, I know you're not going to follow. I know that. Even David said in the psalms that I know that my people are not faithful. They follow because of my leadership. And that was true. So eventually, after enough prophets had gone, that uh, they killed, they beat them, they did all kinds of things. He destroyed the northern kingdom and exiled the southern kingdom. And then silence. Hundreds of years of silence before Christ comes on the scene. Hundreds of years. And uh, they began to wonder, what's next? Where is God? Why is he quiet? The prophets have stopped speaking. Uh, They knew that they were in trouble. You see, the glory had left the temple, Ezekiel 10. The glory left the temple, and when the glory left, that's God packing his own bags and leaving. It's really what that is. And they knew that their sin was still in front of them. And so um, that's a tough time. Sin had not been forgiven. So all of a sudden we have Jesus come onto the scene, 
Advent, we celebrate the birth of the Messiah. And then he starts to live his life out. And that's the story of Hebrews. The story of Hebrews is not focused on his birth or his death. It's focused on his life, except for him dying as a high priest. But it's really highlighting his life. You see, it's his life that qualified him to be our high priest. It wasn't because he was the second person of the Trinity, because he had to be a human. So his life was actually critical to for him to become qualified to be the high priest. And that's what Hebrews is all about. So Jesus came because Hebrews argues, and we'll see this in just a little bit, that the old covenant had become obsolete. It was no longer functioning. He had reached the end of its term, end of its purpose. So you may remember, excuse me, um, so yeah, when he, goes through the, uh, when he goes through the new covenant, he said we need a new covenant because the first one had become obsolete. Remember what the problem was with the first covenant? Paul says it's perfect, it's righteous, it's holy, it's good. What was wrong with the first covenant? Nothing wrong with the covenant. This is what was wrong right here, our hearts. And so it required a new covenant that dealt with this right here. And that's what the triumphal entry of Jesus is all about. So we're going to look at what was the actual new covenant and how was it executed? How did it happen? Okay, what was it? What did God promise and what did he covenant with us? And how did that, how did he make it happen? So all four gospels read the triumphal entry story. Uh, That tells you how important it is. And so I'm just going to read it to you because I think you need to hear this story. This is coming from Mark 11. We could have picked any of the four gospels. I chose Mark. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here shortly. So they went and found a colt outside the street, Um, in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing? Untying the colt. They they answered as Jesus had told them, and the people let them go. Okay, pause for just a second. All of the Gospels give us a little bit more detail, different details about this particular story. The upper room was prepared, for example, and all of that. And so Jesus most likely, I believe, prepared this event ahead of time. He went into Jerusalem, arranged it for all these people so he could send the disciples because he wants to make a theological point. We'll come back to that in just a minute. Verse 7, when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches. I think John says palm branches. That's where we get Palm Sunday from, they had, that they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is the one is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessing is blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Okay, then Jesus entered Jerusalem. So that's where it comes from, the shouting. That's from Psalm 118. Okay? Now, the um, the greeting from Psalm 118 we now know was a standard greeting all around Jerusalem. You got to picture this time. This is one of the three required festivals when everybody had to come from all around the nation. So there could have been easily a million or more people, maybe more than that, in Jerusalem. 
the husbands were required to come, but most of them brought their families. So 50 days later at Pentecost, we have the same scenario. They all came back for that festival as well. So the festivals three times a year were a time of celebration. Remember when we closed out Leviticus, I said, okay, now they're going to go into the land. They're going to scatter. How are they going to, they don't have, they couldn't read. They don't have books. They don't have their phones with Bibles on them. How are they going to remember all those commands in Leviticus? So God took the Levitical tribe and he sprinkled priests all throughout the nation. And then he required them to come together three times a year to celebrate the nine festivals Okay, the three times, and they remembered God, and they worshiped, and it was a party. It was a big celebration. So people were coming all th- into di- the different roads to Jerusalem, and the people are, are reading Psalm 118. Now, to us, it's theologically significant, but to them, it was just more of a Hosanna. That's how we say, praise the Lord. Okay, praise the Lord. It's a good thing. It's not a bad thing, and they meant something with it. But praise the Lord is actually an imperative. So if I say praise the Lord, you should go, Lord, thank you for it. But we don't do that. It's an exclamation of praise, right? And so Hosanna, they, they would say this to all the pilgrims coming in to the city. This was very standard for them to do this. So there's nothing special about Jesus yet as far as his Messiahship goes, okay? The fact that they laid their cloaks and palm branches down um, probably shows that he was popular at some level, okay? They did not understand that he was the Messiah, not the way he was defining the concept of Messiah. But they certainly knew who he was. He'd been in and out, roaming around, doing miracles, teaching. And so he was, they were aware that he's, he's one of the more famous pilgrims. So uh, what, was, what is clear, Matthew makes this clear, is that they saw him as a prophet and not the Messiah, Matthew 21. Let's put Matthew 21 up there. When Jesus answered, in, uh, entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred, and they asked, who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet, not the Messiah. See it? This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. John gives us another clue. Even the disciples didn't understand the true meaning in John 12. At first, his disciples did not understand all of this. This was when the people got done claiming, uh, shouting Psalm 118. They didn't understand this. Only after Jesus was glorified, did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him? So they weren't even sure themselves what was happening. Remember, just before this, uh, Jesus had been talking to them and um, Peter had claimed that you were the Christ, the son of the living God, right? And he told them not to tell anybody. Why? Because they didn't know what that really meant. That's probably why. So he goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration just after Peter announces it, Okay, probably in the northern part of the nation. They take him up on the mountain, and he appears he, tra- he appears transfigured, and then Moses and Elijah appear at the same time. And what does Peter say? I just love Peter. He's one of my heroes. He can't help but talk. Okay? Sometimes if you're just quiet, even Proverbs says, even a fool, when he keeps his mouth quiet, appears as wise. Peter loves to stick his foot in his mouth. He goes, ah, oh, there's Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. This is good. We should build three tabernacles. And a voice comes right out of heaven and says, This is my son. In other words, that's a rebuke. He's not a servant like the other two. You don't understand. These three are not equal. This is my son. Okay? 
I don't know what it was like when the Spirit came at Pentecost. So I want to get, a, when I get to glory, I want to talk to the disciples and say, Peter, what was it like? He's going to say, you know, the Spirit came at Pentecost and we all went, we totally missed it. And the light bulb came on for all of them, okay? And they begin to understand and they begin to explain it. So all the way through, John makes it clear, even here they didn't understand it. They didn't know what was going on. If the disciples who spent three years with everybody, I mean with Jesus, didn't know what was going on, how do we expect all the people to understand it? There was just a very, very few. So even the crowds didn't get it. That's why they saw him as a prophet. Okay? So he was, they were celebrating a standard greeting, and they recognized him as a prophet, but their cries reflected a popular hope, a king-like Messiah, a political Messiah, somebody who's going to come in and restore the kingdom of David, all its glory, and kick out the Romans. That's why just a few days later, what do they cry out in John? We have no king but Caesar. When he proved that that's not the type of Messiah he was going to be a prophet, they turned on him that fast. We have no king but Caesar. What they did by, by showing their allegiance with Caesar is they just threw away 100 years of hope. That's what they did. They threw away 100 years of hope, and they also threw away the covenant of David. You see, the covenant with David in the, for Samuel was really simple. You will not lack a man on the throne, and he will serve eternally. We have no king but Caesar. They didn't get it. Nobody got it except Jesus. So Jesus presents the story now back to arranging everything, even the cult, because Zechariah 9 says, your king, behold your king, coming on a donkey or a colt. He was making a theological statement that they later understood. That's why Matthew says, after this, we got it. Okay, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle, riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so Peter is reflecting back now many years later and go, we got it. Now we understand. That's why Jesus did it the way he did it, to make a theological statement that they would not understand until later. But when they got it, they turned the world upside down. So that, the first question is, why did he actually come to Jerusalem? Why? He came to die. That's why. That's why he came to the earth. What was lacking in all the covenants? True forgiveness. Eternal forgiveness. That's what was lacking. That's why he came to the earth. To fulfill the, the stipulations of the new covenant, to close out the Mosaic covenant, to replace the Passover with communion. So he goes into that last evening celebrating Passover, redefines the elements and comes out with what we call communion, the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, the Eucharist. So the rite, the rite of passage, the ritual has now changed. That's why he came, was to fulfill the old covenant, close it out, it's obsolete, and institute this new covenant, which now encompasses all the covenants of Scripture. 
That's why he came, to die. You see, this was his week of passion. This is why we celebrate in our church Holy Week. Because every day that the Bible, ta- that the Bible mentions is significant in this story. Um, this is the week where he overtly now talks about both the Holy Spirit and his coming death. In the first half of his journey, he said very little about it. A little snippet here, a little snippet there. Then starting in the second half of his, his life, his three years with the disciples, he begins to give them pieces of information which they never did understand. But when he gets to this week, the last night, now he speaks plainly. No parables. He tells them the truth about his death and John 16 about the coming Holy Spirit. By the way, guys, if you're not involved in our hour, that's what we're talking about right now is John 16, the Holy Spirit. Come and you'll learn. This is where he lays it all out now. Okay, now I'm leaving. He's now clear. Someone else is coming. Someone that you will need. So he came to die. Why? To accomplish the one thing that none of the covenants had accomplished. Forgiveness. Shedding of blood. Atoning for our sins because the animals couldn't do it and the high priest couldn't do it. God himself had to do it. So what exactly is a new covenant? You know, the author of Hebrews, boy, this is, he centers his whole argument around the new covenant. It's so important to him that he actually quotes the whole thing from Jeremiah. You can find the new covenant scattered all out throughout the prophets. Isaiah Isaiah talks about it. Jeremiah 31 talks about it. Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel 10. In many other places, they're talking about it. Jeremiah has a very succinct statement of what the new covenant is. So we're just going to read it. Okay, this is out of Jeremiah. I mean, yeah, well, it's not out of Jeremiah. It's quoting Jeremiah. It's Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another, for a second covenant. So we have the first covenant, and now we have the second covenant. We have the old covenant, we have the new covenant. But God found fault with the people. Why? What's wrong with the people? Broken hearts. Depraved hearts. Sinful hearts. There was nothing wrong with the law. It was us. That's the problem. So he said, and this is a direct quote from Jeremiah 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, that's Sinai, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. What, what actually disappeared? Not the covenant itself. Because we talked about that in Leviticus. All those commands disappear in Leviticus. That's what. That's what Ephesians 2, we saw that a few weeks ago. He removed the commands 
the written code, okay? And he has replaced it with a covenant of life. If you've not read our own, she was here at first service, Judy Deal wrote a commentary on 2 Corinthians. It's very accessible. She does a fantastic job in 2 Corinthians 3 where it talks about we are ministers now of a new covenant, a covenant that brings life, not death. How did the first covenant bring death? Paul argues in Romans that I would not have known it was a sin to covet if the law had not been given. Thou shalt not covet. So the moment the law came about, the Mosaic law, sin sprang to life and we died because we disobeyed. We didn't keep it. So Jesus came to fulfill it, keep it completely, and close it and introduce a new covenant. That's why he came to Jerusalem. So now let me go over the four main points of this new covenant so you understand how it begins to capture all the covenants before this. Number one is found in verse 10, the beginning. I will put my law in their minds and I will write them on their hearts. You see, God would now take the Torah, that's the pointing of the way to true north. Remember I've said many times, when God broke into our world, he did three things. He began to mitigate evil. He began to introduce human dignity, which the world couldn't discover. And he begins to point the way to righteousness. That's the Torah, which means the pointing of the way. So he took the Torah now. It's no longer written on Ten Commandments. It's no longer written on stones. Tablets of stone is now written right here. So as Christians, we don't need to be told, don't murder. Do we? It seems natural to us, but it's not. We don't need to be told that anymore. It's written right here. And then with the Holy Spirit indwelling us to energize it, bring it to life, we know that. We don't need to be told not to commit adultery, cheat on our spouses. We do it, but we don't need to be told it. We know it's wrong. And the Holy Spirit is the one who then brings about that sense of, con- of conviction. That's why when you start going down this, or you leave the road of righteousness and start going down this dark alley, you don't feel very good about things. Oh, it's fun. If it wasn't fun, you wouldn't sin. It's fun, but that's not the issue. At some point, you begin to feel that I'm not happy. That's the Holy Spirit doing his work. That's why the, uh, the apostolic fathers, the church apologists, all of our forefathers in the first and second centuries, that's why they talked about us as a new race on the earth. We are a new race. The world has never seen the people of God. They haven't. So that's the first thing, that he put the Torah right here. The second thing is that he would renew the covenant a little differently. He says, I will be their God and they will be my people. Okay? That's the second part of chapter, uh, verse 10. That we now have a brand new relationship with God. The moment your, uh, your faith became real, you entered into a relationship, you entered into a journey that is beyond your wildest expectation. It's just amazing. He begins that, that process, that that supernatural, mysterical, mysterious process where he begins to draw you into him uh, like a tractor beam. And when you decide to screw up, he starts laughing and he goes and grabs you and keeps you pulled closer. And throughout life, you slowly pull closer and closer to him. That was the second part. The third part of it is that um, we would know him. 
all true believers. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. So you actually don't need me. That's why I'm called a gift. A teacher is a gift. I can, you could do what I do, but most of you aren't wired to do what I do, okay? Uh, you're wired to do whatever your career is. That's what you do. God made me for this, so I'm a gift to open the door to help you take that step closer. But all of us that are believers, true believers, know the Lord. And then the last thing, here it is. This is the prize. I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Eternal forgiveness. There's no greater gift than all of creation than that right there. What did Paul say in 2 Corinthians 5? You know the famous verse. If anyone is in Christ, they're part of the new creation. The old is what? It's gone. It doesn't exist anymore. That's why Paul can say, why do you keep sinning? You don't have to. The new has come. But you know what the verse before it says? We no longer evaluate people according to the world's standards. See, here's how the world defines people. Uh, it's a really big right now, all based on sexual orientation. Are you gender fluid? Are you trans? Are you, what are you? I've talked to, you know, many, many people, young people that say, well, I was a lesbian or I was a gay and then I was, you know, gender fluid. Now I'm trans. And I like, don't even have any idea what they're talking about. You know, they really don't. They're just trying to fit in with a group. And so the world categorizes and, and divides people along these lines. There's no longer any scarlet A for adultery. There's no longer any scarlet H for homosexuality. There isn't. We no longer evaluate people according to the world's standards. If anyone is in Christ, they're the new creation. The sin is forgotten. It's gone. Eternally gone. Eternally forgiven. And so when we look at people... That's why I've said many times, I don't care what your personal sin that you struggle with is, except as a pastor, to know how to help you work through the healing with it, of it. Apart from that, it doesn't matter to me. Okay? When we look at people, we ask one question. Are you a believer in Jesus or not? That's what the new covenant brings us. And that's what was instituted at his death. The atonement and eternal forgiveness of our sins and the sending of the Holy Spirit so that we're not alone anymore. God is now living in us to help us. And when we start going astray, what does he do? <clears throat> Here, let me kick you in the tail. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Aren't we blessed? There's nothing greater, nothing at all. How do we celebrate what has been done? This is the reason why he entered into Jerusalem on this final week, was to institute this new covenant. We celebrate it with communion, which we're about to do. Matthew 26. While they were eating, by the way, when I quote the communion down here, I'm usually quoting the 1 Corinthians 11 passage, which Paul talks about. But the different... The different uh, gospel writers gave us different insights into communion. Here's what Matthew said. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given things, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given things, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is 
my blood of the covenant. That's a direct quote out of Exodus 24 when they said, all that God has said, we will do. Moses sprinkled them with blood and said, this is the blood of the covenant. Jesus says, now, this is all new. This new covenant, this is my blood of the covenant. So Hebrews says, we have been sprinkled clean by the blood of Jesus, which is, and he goes on, poured out for many. Why? For the forgiveness of sins. That's why. That's what the new covenant brought, forgiveness of sins. So we are now celebrating the entire plan of God. Let me tell you what this building looks like in terms of the covenants we've been studied. Okay? So he's building a building right here, the spiritual temple. All the covenants come into play. Number one, we are a house of earthly care. We care for the earth and all of its inhabitants, including the animals. That goes all the way back to the cosmic covenant. We are a house of blessing. We've been blessed specifically, specifically so we can go bless our friends and neighbors and strangers, the world. That's who. We're a house of authenticity. We are to be a holy people. We have plenty of churches where their, their faith is fake. We don't need to be that. We need to be an authentic church. We believe what we believe. Don't ever be afraid to tell people that you're a Christian. They don't know who Christ really is. They only know what they've heard. You get a chance to prove them wrong. We're a house of true mediators. We are to be a kingdom of priests for the world. That's to say, he said that in the original covenant. We're going to become priests. Peter said it in 1 Peter. And Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians. We're a house of mediators. And not, not just only on the horizontal plane. We should be helping our friends' marriages. Let us help you. We know how to do it. But we're also mediating on behalf of God. Remember what a priest does? A priest brings God to the people, brings the people to, into God's presence, and then blesses them. Those are the three things a priest did in the Old Testament. That's us. We are a house of joy. We are to enjoy the forgiveness of sins. We're to celebrate. Galatians 5 is for freedom that Christ has set you free. We laugh and joy and dance and celebrate it. We're a house filled with the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about this in Ephesians 5. We are to enjoy the indwelling presence of the Spirit who gives us new life and purpose. We're a house of reconciliation. We are to live out our purpose of being reconcilers. We have been given the ministry of reconciliation, Paul says. We reconcile people constantly to each other and to God And then finally, we're a house of unity. We'll get to that in Ephesians 4. This is why unity is so critical. If we don't have unity, we've already lost. We've already lost. That's why the elder's number one job is about unity. That's our number one responsibility, is to help us stay unified. And the world is doing everything it can to divide us along political lines, science lines, fear, you name it. Celebrities, it's doing everything it can. And our job is not to let the world have its way because we're no longer of the world. We're a new race. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. That's what the covenants are about. Now we have all of it. Father, thank you for sending us your son. Thank you, Lord, for understanding in ways that we could never even imagine 
how to bring us back from that disastrous day in Eden. How to bring us into your own because you love us and you desire truly to have a relationship with us. Thank you. We are grateful. In your son's name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.